Thank you so much for leading us in worship this morning. Um, wasn't Lindsay cute? It was just so fun. Um, we've just we've we have a number uh, again. We're kind of in a baby boom again with little kids. I'm so excited about this facility and for the things we can do for um, all these families as they're beginning to grow up with their kids in our community. Um, I also want to just tell you thank you. I was way um, this last week. I, I had some time to be on vacation and just enjoy some warm weather, play some golf, do some things like that. And then uh, on Wednesday of this past week, I was in San Diego for a, um, some of, there's a man named John Stott who started a ministry called Langham Partnership, and, and, and Langham was just a street where his church was at in England, and the partnership was the ministry he's done around the world. So um, in the States, he was known by John Stott. There was kind of Billy Graham and John Stott were the two big names um, in the evangelical world, and so it was really great for me to be a part of that, um, helping in that conference, and, and I got to hear some incredible stories at one point. Um, Patrick Fung, who is a, a leader of what's called Overseas Missionary Fellowship, which used to be called China Inland Mission, was founded by a guy named Hudson Taylor. If some of you um, are aware of, of church, uh, some of the missionary history, um, he shared, and at one point he just said, I'm going to ask you to stop videoing, turn off the tapes, and, and don't share this on social media. And so I'm not going to share this here because this would be... so. Um, but it was a powerful story of how God was working in China. And it was, you just kind of, you come away and you go, as I look at how God's working in South America and Africa and Asia and Ukraine and just different places, it's just amazing to hear these stories. Because we get so myopic and so focused and so closed in ourselves. And, and folks, the gospel kind of chases poverty. You know Why? Because blessed are the poor. Why? Because the kingdom of God is there. So the rule of God's available in the heart and life of someone who is weak and poor and broken. They seem to just say, God, show up. And he's showing up around the world. And as one of the persons said, one of the difficulties with America is there's no reason to be desperate. But you may be here, and you may be in a desperate place. It may be an illness, it may be in a marriage, it may be with a child, it may be with a, a, a parent that you're caring. It may be that God has just brought you to a place where you're saying, I need you. I need you. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. This was kind of a quieter service as we kind of took communion together, so just move like this for a second, okay? And this is not anything deeply spiritual that you're doing, but you're just getting blood flowing. Because I'm going to talk for the next hour. No, just kidding. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence here, for God, the way you lead us and guide us and direct us in our life, for the fact that you are here right now. And we pray, Holy Spirit, come and use the words of, of, of Scripture that were written and inspired by you, that we can have full confidence in, and God, use them to speak to our heart and our situation right now. I just want you to take a second, is you, you just open your heart to God and just tell him if, if, you're, if you're willing, say, God, I want to lean into this, I want to learn from you. Teach me something. God, you've heard those prayers. I pray for your spirit to fill me, to be able to be a voice for you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's really interesting. I've been thinking a lot because of what this whole passage of Scripture from Hebrews. I, I've shared with people, Hebrews has is is never been one of my favorite books. And it's kind of a funny thing to say as a pastor, right? 
But it hasn't until I've been really, as I've been studying it and getting deeper into it, um, I, I, it's just amazing to me as I understand the depths of it. Part of the reason is you have to have some understanding of the Old Testament. So if you're here in, 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 and have not had um, some of that background, sometimes this is a little more difficult, a little more obtuse to be able to follow. Um, but I'm going to try as best I can to kind of share some of those things. But one of the things we find is qualifications are very, very important. And one of the things he's saying is Jesus is qualified. So I was thinking about qualifications for things. And, and one of them I, I, I began to look into. It just kind of in my mind. I don't know why it came up. But I thought, I wonder what it takes to qualify for the Indy 500. Anybody, anybody know much of the racing, car racing? Not your own car. I mean just car racing in general, right? Um, how do you qualify for one of the 33 spots in the Indy 500? The race that's run around Memorial Day weekend, and, and, and it's a 500, that's why Indy 500, 500 miles, 200 laps. Well, what you have to do is if one of the two cars you bring, whether your primary or your backup car, has to complete four laps. So in that kind of qualification time, you have to complete four laps, which is 10 miles. And you get three attempts a day during the three days of qualification. The first day is really important because faster is better. Get that? Faster is better. And a good speed is about 233 miles per hour. That's doing one lap of 2.5 miles in 38.6 seconds. There's a little qualification. Do not try this on your own. On the first day, poll day, the first 24 spots are filled by the 24 fastest drivers. And at the end of the day, the fastest nine qualifiers have to do one more run. And then they are ranked according to how fast they are from one through nine. And with 24 spots then filled, the remaining spots to complete the field of 33 go to the top driver over the next few days, who has not qualified. And there's a little thing called bumping, a little more that I don't want to get into because you can bump a couple players off. But anyway, that's what you have to do to qualify for the Indy 500. Not anybody can just say, I'm going to take my Toyota Camry and I'm going to try it. And you bring your little backup car, whatever that is. Well, in a similar way, what he's been saying here is not anybody qualifies to help you in your time of need. There's just not, you know, anybody who can come along, and you can look at other faiths, you can look at other places. In fact, if you look for things within yourself, or you look for things like, you know, a spouse, or maybe your job, or, they're going to fail you. There's only one. And so he kind of goes through this list, and he, he, he talks about the, the list of, of ways that Jesus qualifies. Beginning in chapters Hebrew, the first chapter, the first few verses, he says, he's, he's a better message. Jesus is a better message than that which comes to the prophets. God's spoken all kinds of ways, but there's a better message. Then he goes, you know, you're really into angels. I understand that. When Moses came and God revealed himself at the mountain, no one wanted to go up there. You said, Moses, you go for us. But you were really impressed because Moses had angels who brought him the law and, and gave him those things, and you're really impressed. So better than, than the message that comes to the prophets is the messenger, because the message, Jesus, he, he, he is the messenger and the message, and he's better than the angels. And then he goes on, he says, and here's another person that he's better than Moses. You, you love Moses, he gave you the law, he formed you as a people, and, and he interceded for you in times when you guys were a mess, and at times when the father was going to kind of say, forget it, I'm done with these guys, Moses, I'm going to start with you, and he, he interceded. 
but there's someone better who's interceding for you right now, and his name's Jesus. And then as we heard last week when George spoke, chapter 4 of the first 13 verses, he said there's someone who is better than Joshua. I mean, you all want to rest, right? You all want to kind of go, God... Um, I, I would love it if I could just trust you with my life in, 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 in the provision that is needed and, and, and for you to make me the kind of person that you have created me to be. And, and better than Joshua, who in a symbol pointed to the promised land, is Jesus. Because in Jesus is better rest. And so as he is going through these things, he starts to take a little bit of a turn here when we come to chapter 4. And and in order to do this, when I was planning this series, I didn't realize at this point that I had taken chapter 4, verse 14, through chapter 6, verse 20. And that's what we're doing today. So we're not going to get down in the weeds. There's so much to get into down there. There's going to be people say, well, what about this doctrinal issue? This We're not going to do that. I want to try and share with you from a 40,000-foot perspective um, three things that the author expresses. He has a challenge to the people. And if you look at chapter 4 and you look at the, these verses, you'll see then chapter 4, verse 14 through um, 511, he talks about never giving up. He then talks, uh, he expresses a concern in chapter 5, verse 12, through verse, chapter 6, verse 12, another large section. And the concern is that you'll never grow up. And then the last is in chapter 6, 13 through 20, an incredible, powerful passage that you could just spend time giving probably two, three messages on. He talks about never losing hope because your hope is in God and his word and his promise. That's kind of the, where we're going to be heading. But what I want you to understand, with these verses to cover from chapter 4, 14 through 6, 20, he's talking about the high priestly service. And he takes a turn from talking about these people, from, uh, from the, the prophets, the angels, to um, Moses, to, to Joshua. And now he starts talking about the, the work of the high priest, both the high priest as a person, the service that he brings, the sacrifice that he brings, the temple that he goes into. So now he starts moving more into that kind of religion life of the people. And that's what we're going to be looking at in these chapters that we're heading into. So in verse 4, 14 of chapter 4, he basically is saying Jesus is the better high priest in every way, in his service and everything he, he does. Because the high priest before was a man. And he was a man who came into a man-made tent when it was with Moses, or a, a man-made brick-and-mortar building when it was with David and Solomon, and he was just bringing an animal sacrifice. It was all pointing to a much better sacrifice and a much better high priest who did the whole thing. And what you get is this picture in verse 14. He says, but Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest who has gone to heaven itself to help us. Everything else was happening down here on earth. It was a man who brought an animal who was in a man-made kind of temple that was into a place where there's a holy of holies where God kind of would, would show up and meet with them. But he's saying Jesus does something really radically different, and it's so much better in every way. Because as it says here, the Son of God, the great high priest, has actually gone into heaven itself. 
Now, if you read the NIV, it says he ascended to heaven, which is an interesting picture because it kind of harkens back. And I think the translators say this because that's not what the words really are. But it, they say that because in Acts, it, it, after Jesus' ministry and death and resurrection, he stood at the disciples. He said, I'm going back to my father. And it's this picture of him going into the heavens. We get this idea that the throne room of God is out there somewhere. But that's not what Scripture really is saying. He's saying we live in this earthly physical realm, and, and I don't get physics real well, but supposedly this is a bunch of stuff that really isn't as hard as this. It's just a bunch of, right? I don't get this, but there's a dimension. There's, in a sense, he says, you know, just like the high priest would go into this man-made temple with this man-made curtain, and they'd pull back this curtain, and they'd come into the presence of God, kind of figuratively coming into his presence. Jesus actually did this. He being God in flesh, both man and God, he separated not a physical temple, but this spiritual, this earthly curtain into the spiritual, actual presence. And he himself was the sacrifice, the mess, everything, because he was God. And he comes before his Father and he brings your need to him. If it's your sin, he brings it as a sacrifice and says, Would you forgive him? And, and the Father says, Yes, if they trust in Jesus. Whatever your need is right now, you don't have some high priest who's trying to go and, and, and you're hoping is standing in front of God and God's, you have Jesus standing in the very presence of God right now with whatever your need is. And that's what he gives as a picture. So, let's run through this passage of scripture, verse 14 of, of, of chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 11, the challenge, never give up. He basically is saying, um, I want you to understand this about Jesus. He says he goes into the presence of God. And, and he says, I want you to see, he says, Jesus, our great high priest, verse 14, who has gone into heaven itself to help us. What I didn't finish is, he says, let us never stop trusting him. Never give up. Never. Never stop trusting. Keep believing. And then he gives you this picture of Jesus, the high priest, and he gives you four things about this high priest that gives you confidence that says, I'm going to keep trusting. He almost says this, watch Jesus, he never gave up. And so he goes, the first thing he, he talks about is, is the fact that, that Jesus understands. Jesus gets you. Through um, 14 through 5, 3, he, he makes this point in these first few verses. And he says, This high priest of our understands our weakness since he has had the same temptations we do, though he never once gave way to them and said he never gave up in the midst of the temptation. Never give up because Jesus, your great high priest, gets you. He understands you. He knows your situation. And yet, he never sinned. And so he goes on, and he says this, um, uh, since he has had the same temptations we do, though never gave way to them and, and never sinned, let us come boldly to the very throne of God and stay there, catch that, stay there, don't leave, to receive mercy, to find grace, to help us in our time of need. It's kind of like Jesus went through, and you're in Jesus now, and you're standing there with Jesus, and Jesus is making that intercession for you. So whatever your need is right now, just don't, don't back away. Just stay in it. Whatever the temptation is, just keep trusting God. God is going to provide. You're kind of going, but, but God, I, I, I want to do this on my own. I want to manipulate, make this happen. I want to give up. I want to, I want to just 
turn away. He says, no, just stay there. Right now, stay there with Jesus because Jesus is before the Father and he understands what you're going through. He has been a a person who has experienced your weakness. And so in in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, the Jewish high priest is merely a man like anyone else. And I was comparing back to this Jewish high priest. But he was chosen to speak for all their men in their dealings with God. He presented their gifts to God and offers him the blood of animals that are sacrificed to cover the sins of people and his own sins too. Not Jesus. He never sinned. And because he is a man, he can deal gently with other men. Though they are foolish and ignorant, for he too is surrounded with the same temptations and understands their problems very well. Here's what we know about Jesus. He also was a man. So one of the things that happens, should happen in our life, because I am like you, I should probably be able to understand you. If, 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 if you've failed me, there's a good chance that I've probably failed someone else, right? I should be able to understand. I should be able to deal gently. Now, we don't do that, right? We're really judgmental. I can't believe you did that. But what he's saying is Jesus gets you. It's kind of a principle. Just like the high priest kind of gets you, you have to understand Jesus isn't far removed. He fully understands you. He's, he's the perfect bridge. And the next thing he talks about is not just the fact that he understands and he gets you. He's been through, um, he understands your weakness. He's been through the temptations you've experienced, though he's not sinned. He now talks about stability. Jesus is, is, is appointed by God. And his point is never give up because Jesus is God's choice to represent you forever. If you read verse 4, it says, Another thing to remember is that no one can be a high priest just because he wants to be. Even in that day, the high priest had to be called by God for this work in the same way God chose Aaron. He says, not everybody just qualifies. God chose him. And yet, he goes on in verse 5, That is why Christ did not elect himself to the honor of being high priest. No, he was also chosen by God. And God said to him, Referring back to the Old Testament, so they have two witnesses. Two witnesses are always really important in Jewish testimony. My son, today I have honored you. And then another time, the second witness, is you have been chosen to be a high priest. And here's the words, forever. And he uses this, this little line that he says three times in these verses we're going to be looking at, with the same rank as Melchizedek. Now, a couple of things there. Whenever he is going to talk about something, he starts bringing it up. So in these passages of Scripture, he talks about Melchizedek, and in chapter 7, he starts talking more fully about him. But there's a reason why he brings up like Melchizedek. It's the same rank or class or order. Because they're thinking about Aaron and the priesthood and the high priesthood being here, and, and God chose him, and, and yet he's a man. He goes, no, you know, even before Moses and the high priest here, it was a guy named Abraham. And Abraham at one point had a guy named Melchizedek come out of, the, out of nowhere who Abraham himself gave tithes and offering to. So he kind of bowed down to him and, and in a sense worshipped him. It's this idea that there was this guy who comes with no beginning and no end and he is a priest in a sense forever and that's what Jesus signifies. He's one who comes with no beginning and no end in the same class and order as the guy who came to Abraham. And so his point is this. We'll see him mention this in verse 6 about Melchizedek, verse 10 in chapter 5, and then in chapter um, 19 and 20, he concludes this section as he begins to move into Melchizedek, talking about the order of Melchizedek, that he is forever, no beginning and end to his service. Now, stability is important. 
And I, I can make this kind of clear to you. When I did work for a group called Food for the Hungry, I had the opportunity to go to Ethiopia. And one of the things we learned about that is they had just opened up an area that they wanted to bring in um, education and, and, and hygiene and a whole bunch of things to help this community out in the West that... Um, was really suffering with disease and the water and all kinds of issues. And the government decided, let's, let's ask this organization, Food for the Hungry, to come in and do this. One of the things that Food for the Hungry understood is that when they did this, the governments in many of these African countries are rather corrupt. And here's what happens. They will make a policy, and they'll do it for about two years or so, and then they'll change their policies because there's no stability. What happens is the person comes in, they go ahead and make a bunch of policies, a politician or the person over this area of of government, and they get kicked back and all kinds of things, and after two years, they get enough money to be able to kind of retire, and they're done. The next guy comes in and goes, I don't like this group, I like that group. It's really hard to do work in an unstable situation with regard to leadership. Let me put it this way. Some some of you have um, carriers that that help you with your utilities or things like that, and so I'm not going to share you with the one that I have, but we have some situations with our own IT. Uh, My wife's the IT person at our house, but um, I I, I kind of refer... But anyway, we call a person, and we've had a person come to our house for the last five, six years. I really liked the guy. He understood our wires were and how things work because things are a mess. And one day a guy shows up who doesn't know anything about our house. And you've got to explain everything and you try and help them understand where this goes. And you see what I mean? Just in, in, in life, stability is a good thing. Here is the point he's making. Jesus is forever the one who not only understands you and gets you and he, he experiences what you've experienced, but he is always going to represent you in the presence of God. There's no four-year term and maybe another four years after that. And that's what he talks about, stability. And then he talks about the next thing is, is that he was passionate. Jesus is committed to you. He says, never give up. Not only does he understand you and get you, not only is there a stability that he will be there, but never give up because Jesus himself never gave up and never will give up on you. He's committed to you. Verse 7. Yet while Christ was on earth, it says he pleaded with God praying with tears and agony of soul to the only one who would save him. And this is the Living Bible. And, and, and what the point is in this is from premature death. And God heard his prayers because of his strong desire to obey God at all times. Now this is referring in the garden. And so often when we think about Jesus in the garden, we think of him going, oh God, just if there's another way, get me out of this. I'm going to really want to go through all this pain and suffering. You know what Hebrews is saying he was doing? He was praying in this way. Christ's longing was to live until he could die on the cross for you and me. He was so committed to you and to me. And this case is, could be made that Satan's great desire was to have Christ die prematurely. In the temptations that he had in the wilderness, he tried to get him to sin, tried to get him. So now if you can't get him to sin, you can't get him off course, maybe what you can do is have him die ahead of time. That's why through these people who's plotting his death all the time, now he's in the garden, Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying in agony of his soul, blood sweating down his face, saying, I want so badly to go to the cross because I love you. Father in heaven, don't let this cup pass from, I, I, how can I walk into this? 
My soul is, is exceedingly sorrowful, he says at one point, unto death. And then not only that, in verses 8 through 11, it's not just the fact that he's passionate and he, he's committed to you, he understands you, and he will be there for you, but he also is an example. He shows you exactly how to do it. Never give up because Jesus modeled exactly what it meant like to endure. He is the perfect example of a person who in full innocence with his character went through testing and through that testing brought that innocence to a place of virtue, completeness, fullness. You know, just like, like us. Imagine this. Jesus had to live. Just, he, he, he prayed, God, give me patience, and then God had problems in his way, and he then allowed God to do the work through that trial, whatever it is, to learn patience. Where are you at? You, 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 you may be going through something right now, and, and instead of saying, God, get, get rid of it, how about through this perfecting something in me so that when I face this again, it just won't really bother me in the same way. So he says, and even though in verse 8, Jesus was God's son, he had to learn from experience what it was like to obey when obeying meant suffering. It was after he had proved himself perfect in this experience that Jesus became the giver of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. For remember that God had chosen him to be a high priest, here it is again, with the same order, rank, class as a person like Melchizedek. I like the way the NIV writes this part. It says, Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And so he's basically saying, whatever temptation you have, whatever need you're facing in your life right now, how are you viewing this? Do you know that you have a high priest in Jesus who is right in the very presence of God? He is there for you. He is interceding for you. He's saying, come boldly before him because in your time of need right now, he says, stay there, remain there, pray. God, as this is going on, instead of maybe God change things, how about perfecting in me? How about taking this right now, the character that you want to develop and take this, which is just in a very small-like form and develop it into completeness, perfection, maturity so that as I go through this like Jesus went through this, you will give me grace and you will give me mercy. That's the Jesus we serve. And so the challenge is is really a simple one in these verses. And that challenge is, is to never give up. Keep trusting. And if you go to verse 11, there's a transition that takes place here. He says, "Um, there's much more I'd like to say to you along these lines, but you don't seem to listen. So it's hard to make you understand. Basically, I have a concern. I've challenged you to stay and keep trusting and, and not to let go, not to move into your own flesh and try and make this thing happen on your own, but I'm asking you to stay in there and come to the throne and ask for grace and mercy to let God do the work inside of you that needs to be done. But I really have a concern that all the stuff I have just said you're not getting. And here's my concern, he says. You seem to never grow up. And it's really interesting because the author was concerned about their hearing and not listening. They were, he, he's basically saying, yeah, I keep going through the same ABCs and you don't seem to develop. Now, as you read through this book of Hebrews, he gives five warnings and now we're at the third warning. The very first warning that he gives is after he's talking about the angels who they're all impressed with the angels and how they revealed themselves. And he says, you're impressed with angels giving you a message? How about Jesus, who is God himself giving you a message. And his, his, his call at this point, his warning is, is, you know, pay attention. Don't drift away. Don't become complacent. 
And then he moves from that, and he says a whole bunch of things about, the, about Moses and the rest. And now when he gets to that, he goes to a second warning. And the second warning is not just about, you know, don't drift away, don't become complacent. You know how easy it is to say, you know, I just, and you don't really apply yourself. Now his second warning is this, don't be disobedient. I mean, you can actually say to God, you know, you can move away by complacency. He says drifting away like from the moorings on a, a boat that drifts away. Or he says in the second one, you can be like the people of Israel who when they um, come before God, they raise their fist to him and they say, we just don't believe you, God. And they complain and every time they do it, they never trust his provision and they don't have enough faith. They don't walk into the promised land. And he says, if you want to live your life that way, and you say, God, I don't really believe you. I don't really believe it. What he does is he allowed them, because of their disbelief and disobedience, to just circle in the wilderness for 40 years. Some of you have been facing the same temptation, the same thing, trial in life, again and again, because you just keep going around until you come to a place and say, God, I believe you. I'm going to step into this. Now, here's the third warning. The third warning is not, it's not about complacency drifting away. It's not about disobedience and this rebellion that says, I'm just not going to believe you. I'm not going to trust you, God. Your word says that I shouldn't um, gossip. Or your word says that I, I shouldn't take things into my own hand. Or your word says that I should live a pure life and, and hold my sexuality to the person I'm committed to. Whatever it is. I don't believe you. The third one is this. You seem to be perpetually immature. I keep sharing these things with you, and you seem to never grow at all. And so he expresses a warning in the sense of a concern, because in chapter 5, verses 12, through chapter 6, verse 3, he says, if you have come to a place where you have opened your heart to God. You said, yeah, I remember back at camp, and one time I made a commitment to Christ. He says, if you've made a commitment at some point in your life, and you've opened your heart in, in repentance, and, and you open your heart, he says, growth is expected. You should be growing. Listen to what he says. You have been Christians, according to verse 12, a long time now, and you ought to be teaching others. This is the idea that is, if you've been learning the ABCs, are you turning around in any way? Think about this in your life. So this is going to be hard. This is like a, a coach talking to a team right now. Okay, I'm not going to be easy on you. God's taught you things. Are you turning around and teaching it to anybody? Or do you just keep hearing the same thing over and over again? You see, the way you grow in faith is you begin to take in and you begin to learn these basic lessons is what he says. And when you begin to learn these things about God, you begin to turn around and you begin to share those things with other people. That's part of what it means to become like Jesus. And, and then he goes on, but instead you've dropped back to the place where you need someone to teach you all over again the very first principles in God's word. You're like babies and can only drink milk, not old enough for solid food. And when a person is still living on milk, it shows he isn't very far along in his Christian life and it doesn't know much about the difference between right and wrong. He's still a baby Christian. You will never be able to eat solid spiritual food and understand the deeper things of God's word until you become better Christians and learn right from wrong by practicing and doing what is right. Let us stop going over the same ground again and again all his teaching the first lessons of Christ let's go on to other things and I'm not going to go through all that except to say this he's basically saying so some of you are young parents or when you were young parents you'd go you'd have a baby right and you'd take that baby to the doctor and the doctor would look at the baby and go oh, this is great 80th 90th percentile and you go around and you brag to feel yeah 80th 90th percentile and then it's, let's say it's 50 to 60 and now he's saying yeah we got to watch this baby but if they say 30 percentile you get a little worried 
And the doctor says, you know, why don't you come back in a week? Because we, we need to see. Because growth is expected in a baby. And what he's basically saying is so many people, it's real possible for you to kind of be in that baby stage for a long time. And he's saying it's like drinking milk. Uh, milk, when you think about it, it doesn't take much for a baby to do. They have an instinctual ability to suck and to actually take milk in. And you don't have to do much to process the nutrients. It just kind of happens. But when you grow and you begin to take what is called solid food, that means you have to be a person who participates in your nourishment. So when my kids were little, I'd do these little things like I'd take my spoon, you know, and I'd have to go like this, you know what I mean? You do that with kids? And you got the little green stuff on there, no one wants to eat, and you don't want to eat it, but you know if you make it attractive, they may open their mouth. And then they do, and you go, whoa, that's great. And now, when my daughter came home from college, let's say she's 19, 20, if I still go, something's wrong. Because <laughs> growth is expected. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying to you, it is not enough, and, and, and do not put it on a pastor's shoulder or on a church's shoulder to say, you know, if you would just on Sunday mornings, just make this so it goes, and I'll eat, and that's right. He's going, No. Growth is expected. There is a participation. When it comes to the things that, it, they're really hard for me, folks. I'm not any better than anybody here because uh, I'm seeking to grow in this. But he's saying you have a will and you have a choice and you have the ability to start in coming along the grace of God. Grace is against earning. You'll never earn your salvation, but it is not against effort. What you do along with God is you work out your salvation. And he's saying very clearly here, here's the warning. I'm not talking about complacency. I'm not talking about direct disobedience. I'm talking about perpetual immaturity, which causes him to say, I'm concerned. Because growth should be happening. And it isn't. Verses 4 through verse 8 of 6. If growth isn't happening, here's how I understand these verses. He says, there's no use trying to go back to the Lord again if you have once understood the good news and tasted yourself the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit. And you know how good the word of the Lord is and how you've felt the mighty powers of the world to come and how you've turned against him and you can, uh, cannot bring yourself to repent again if you've nailed the Son of God to the cross again and rejecting him, holding it up to mocking and public shame. He's basically saying this. I don't believe this is, you, you know, you can lose your salvation. I think he is saying growth isn't expected and if growth isn't happening, here's the question. Have you ever been born? Have you ever been born of the Spirit of God? Have you ever come to a place of humility? Have you ever had this sense of brokenness that says, God, I need you. I need your grace. I need for you to begin to take the selfishness of my heart and my self-absorption. I need for you to give me awareness around it first. And then I need to give, have um, actions that I can take that can begin to start causing maturity to happen so that, that someday when I stand before you, his question isn't going to be how well did the church feed you. and do, His question is going to be this, did you grow? And his question is going to be this, did you grow in love? He's not caring if you've got lots of doctrine either. He wants to know, has your person been shaped to be a more loving person like Jesus himself? You should be going, amen, right? But here's the scare. Here's the thing I'm going to say very directly to some. I don't know. Let the Holy Spirit do it. Growth should be expected. But if it's not happening, he says this. You have to wonder whether you've really ever been born in the faith because babies naturally desire 
to hunger, and they naturally want to stand up and to start moving and to start growing and to start using their mind. It's just the natural process. And so also, when the Spirit comes into a person's heart, the supernatural process begins when you, by faith, begin to say, I'm going to start making this faith so important in my life and this Jesus so important that he will be the center of all that I am and do. So that's his point here. He gets into that, and then he goes at the end here, um, verses 9 through 11, and he says, guess what? Growth is possible. I've I've shared with you this really hard message, and some of you need to take it in, but for a lot of you, I'm really excited because I I do believe in better things. He goes, dear friends, even though I'm talking like this, I really don't believe that what I'm saying applies to you. But I'm confident that you are producing the good fruit that comes along with your salvation. For God is not unfair. How can he forget your hard work for him or forget the way you used to show love for him and and still do by helping his children? And we are anxious that you keep right on loving others as long as life lasts. And so his last statement is an expression of comfort. If we come to these last few verses, never lose hope because your hope is in God and your hope is in his promise. And he he makes this, I'm just going to kind of take this And not read it for you. Please read it on your own. It's such a powerful thing. But he basically says God makes a promise. And when people make a promise, you usually make a promise. And if the person's got character, you believe the person's word, right? But sometimes, even if the person may have character, and like my daughter, I one time went to get a car, and she sat down, and and she had character, but she didn't have a lot of credit and stuff like that. So they said, you know, we'd like, you know, do you have someone who could sign with you, right? Dad. So dad comes along because if she doesn't keep her word, who are they going to make accountable? So it's the idea they took a promise and then they want a, a, an oath behind that. Here is God. He makes a promise to you. His character should be good enough, but he goes, guess what, folks? I'm not going to just promise you. I'm going to swear by myself. He doesn't have anyone else hired to swear by. There's no dad that can come. He goes, I'm going to promise you, but I'm also going to make an oath. Twice I'm going to tell you that there is no way, there is no way, don't ever lose hope. In your time of need, stand before the throne where you're at right now, whatever God is trying to do in you, come before him and say, God, give me grace, give me mercy. As a church, God, give us grace, give us mercy. When Lindsay was talking about trafficking here, we're going to be talking about imagine a church that does whatever it takes to serve this West Metro area. What does it look like for us to say, God, in this West Metro area, give us mercy. Even if we have to suffer, we want to stop human trafficking in this area. And would you, God, give us grace and mercy and help do this with other churches because we're not going to do this alone. God, we want to see your transforming power begin to move in this community. And, and I'm calling you as people, listen to this. I want you by faith to step into this and say, Jesus, you are the most important. I'm going to understand who you are. I'm going to grow in you. I'm going to understand my gifts and I'm going to start to serve you in a way that makes a difference everywhere I live. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out and... I'm going to ask you to stand because this is the last thing I want to do. Um, he talks about anchoring. Jesus goes into the heavenly place and it's like he takes a rope from people and he's anchoring them to God. So you're anchored to God. No one's moving God, right? So just imagine when you're anchoring. But there's another thing he says. He says every, every promise in 1 Corinthians, he says every promise has been fulfilled in Christ. Every promise God ever gave throughout his word has been a yes. If you say, come in Jesus, 
Every promise that has been made is made in Jesus and said yes. So in Jesus, every promise to you is a yes. Do you know how many promises there are in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible? I don't either. But anyway, um, <laughs> no. Some guy estimated there's 7,487 promises. And so every promise of those 7,487 promises, which there could be more, God says yes. If you come with Jesus, he says yes. So let's try it together. I want you to say yes after each one of these. Will every promise God has made be fulfilled? Yes. Oh, boy, you're doing better in the first service. So you keep it up here. Will God forgive your sin? Yes. Every sin you have ever committed? Yes. Even the one you committed on the way to church this morning? Yes. <laughs> he will guide you. Yes. Come on, keep it up. He will listen to your every prayer. Yes. He will give you wisdom when you ask. Yes. Will he be gentle with you when you make a mistake? Will he help you when you cry out to him? Yes. Will he be patient even when you fail him again and again? Yes. Will he be kind as he leads you to repent? Yes. Will he encourage you when you are down? Yes. Does he look upon you right now with joy? Yes. Is he proud of you and how he's created you? Yes. Does his face shine upon you with the smile of a loving parent? Yes. Is his hand upon you to fulfill his purposes in and through you? Yes. Will he empower you to do what you need done this week? Will he be with you as you face the fear that's been holding you back? Will he remove every obstacle that keeps you from him? Does he call you his beloved? I'm going to ask the the ushers to come forward. We're going to take the caring fund as a time where we just say, God, we want to give a little of the stuff that we've earned, even if it hurts a little bit, to help other people who are hurting in our community. And, And so if they take that as we sing this song.